Chapter 28 of A May Fair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Bear. A May Fair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science by George Griffith. Chapter 28. Can you not see, Dr. Halkey, that all things considered, the course which I propose is the only practicable, in fact the only possible one, for all of us? By some means or other, your continual existence and presence here have become suspected. You know perfectly well that if Harold Enstone can send you back to prison, he will, and this time there will be no escape. You know also that I have the best of reasons for wishing him permanently out of the way. I won't say that his existence is quite as dangerous to me as it is to you, but it is sufficiently so to be exceedingly unpleasant. Now, here we have an opportunity which could hardly come to us again. You will assume one of those admirable disguises of yours and come with us to Natiefburg. Your niece, as I think you prefer to call her, your daughter. Ah, uh, yes, interrupted Jenner Halkin in a voice like the snarl of an angry dog. Of course you know that, too. And therefore, the reason. I do, replied Siemens gravely, looking at him with unconcealed disgust. And therefore I know that you are the most unspeakable mixture of madman and scoundrel that ever was allowed to live. However, for decency's sake, we will call her your niece. If you come, she must. And when we get into the safe seclusion of Natiefburg, you will cause her to write a note to her husband, saying that at the last moment the princess had persuaded her to accompany us on our trip as far as Paris. We can send her carriage back for her maid and the necessary luggage. There will be plenty of time for that before we catch the train. Then the letter from Natiefburg will bring her husband there hot foot, and meanwhile we can arrange for the necessary accident to happen to him. Of course I know that I am talking to one of the greatest criminals, potentially at least, that exists, replied Halkin slowly. I would rid the earth of you if I could, but unfortunately, perhaps for the world, neither you nor I can harm each other. Therefore, as we must live, we may as well do so in the most convenient fashion. As you know, I have nothing to live for except science. But for that, I would live a thousand years if I could. In comparison with science, I hold nothing of any value, and therefore I agree, although I know you ought to be killed for even thinking of what you wish to do. For me, it is a choice, between continuing the glorious and mighty work that I have begun at the Institute, a work which before I die will place me on the throne of the world with statesmen and monarchs as my servants and puppets and the living death of the prison. Therefore, Harold Enstone shall come to Natiefburg and never leave it. And when that danger to us both, which is incarnate in him, has ceased to exist, I will go back to my work, will live my life, and you will live yours. There will be no need for us to meet again. I quite agree with you, said Henley Siemens, taking a cigar out of his case and snipping the end with his cutter. It is just as well that people who know each other as intimately as you and I do should keep as far apart as possible. You perform your part of the bargain, and I'll perform mine. 
As soon as Harold Enstone has been duly abolished, I will give you a million's worth of negotiable securities, and we will say goodbye, I hope, forever, at least as far as this existence is concerned. What we shall be in the next, well, we needn't trouble ourselves about that for the present. If we get what we deserve, I suppose we shall be reborn as the children of pickpockets and grow up in the slums on the edge of starvation and steal for a living and go to prison as an occasional diversion. One life at a time, if you please, said Halkin, with a smile which was anything but mirthful. Who are we that we should anticipate the intentions of internal wisdom? Well, we won't trouble about that now, said Siemens, getting up. This is a curious sort of conversation for a man to have on his wedding day. But, of course, one can't trifle with necessities. Then you will be ready to start with us for Paris this evening. You know we shall have a special train, and my yacht will be waiting at Dover, so we shall have quite a comfortable trip. Yes, replied Halkin. I shall be ready. And now perhaps the princess had better arrange for Grace's maid to bring what she will want. He got up and opened the door of his own sanctum in which this conversation had taken place, and Hedley Siemens went in search of his bride to discuss the final details of the villainous plot with her. Of all the facts which are repeated over and over in the history of crime, the most remarkable is that no matter how daringly or how skillfully a crime is planned, some apparently trifling detail, which might or might not have been foreseen, is left out of the calculation and more often than not either upsets the whole scheme or becomes the means of bringing the criminal to justice after the crime has been committed. Now it will be admitted that the crime which Hedley Siemens and Karanatiev had planned, and which Jenner Halkin, in his insane devotion to what he believed to be the preeminent interests of science, was as foul and revolting in its nature as it was clever in the simplicity of its conception. Apparently nothing had been overlooked, Grace, once more, completely under the influence of the overmastering, although deranged, intellect of her father, would travel with them, just as though she were the guest instead of, as she might be called, a mental prisoner. There would be no suspicion. Not even her maid would be able to detect the fact that she was not the mistress of her own actions. She would reach Natiefburg practically without knowing how or why she had come. Then, at Halkin's dictation, she would write a letter to her husband, which would bring him, wondering perhaps, but unsuspicious of evil, to the princess's stronghold in the Polish wilderness. There the deadly work would be done in such fashion as would leave no trace of anything. But Grace's maid happened to be a North Country girl, the daughter, in fact, of one of Sir Godfrey's tenants, who had shown signs of peculiar brightness which had attracted Sir Godfrey's attention. He knew that Harold would some day marry, and, by a most happy chance, he selected this girl as a possible maid for his future wife. He had her well-educated, perhaps somewhat beyond her station in life, but her quick intellect had amply justified his choice, and the consequence was that Grace came into the possession of a lady's maid very far above the average, and, moreover, gratefully devoted to the fortunes of the House of Enstone, in the person of Miss Lucy Merritt. When the carriage came back with the message from her mistress, she at once set to work on her packing. But while she was engaged on this task, her shrewd wits were also working rapidly, and by one way or another she speedily arrived at the conclusion that the first person who ought to know about this curious journey was her master, and the result of this very essential little piece of thinking was that, late that evening, 
unhappily just too late to get a train to the south, Harold Enstone, in a remote village in Northumberland, which was to be the centre of the new iron fields, received by a mounted messenger a telegram, which to his utter amazement told him that his wife was starting, indeed had started, for Paris, as the guest of Headley Siemens and his wife on their wedding tour. His first idea was to wire Colonel Raoul Grover, who was the one man in London whom he felt he could absolutely depend, and ask him to follow Grace to Paris, and to bring her back by any means that he might find possible. But a moment's reflection told him the colonel could not possibly cross the channel until the next morning, and by that time, if Headley Siemens and his wife really had any sinister designs upon Grace, they certainly would have made pursuit for the present impossible. The telegram told him that the party were travelling by a special train, and that Siemens' yacht was to take them from Dover to France, but whether Calais or Boulogne it did not say, and for the matter of that, what was to prevent Headley Siemens, who, as he now felt certain, had every reason to fear him, and therefore injure him, from taking the yacht anywhere else. She was a thousand-tonner, one of the finest yachts afloat, and could go anywhere. Once away from Dover, and every trace of her might be lost for days and weeks, she could run down to the Mediterranean, and idle about there among the Ionian Islands, or in the island-studded Aegean. She could take a passage around the Cape to Australia, coal up at one of the Australian ports, and spend a year or so among the South Sea Islands. She could run across the Atlantic, coal at Kingston, and get away down to the east coast of South America, where Headley Siemens' millions could buy him absolute immunity from the operations of all civilized law, until it was too late for the law to act. He could do anything, because he possessed the first two factors of civilization, money and the means of rapid transit. He was fully convinced now that Headley Siemens was the scoundrel whom he had hoped to run to earth, but what a hostage to fortune he had so skillfully and so suddenly captured. How many horrible possibilities were there, just in the simple fact that Grace was the guest, and very possibly the prisoner, of Collier Banfield and his Polish wife? His early training under his father, and Sir Godfrey in the wild life that they had led in the outlands of the earth, had taught him what is perhaps the most invaluable lesson that a man can learn, to think quickly and to act instantaneously on the thought. This is what he did now. He had crushed the telegram up in his hand. He had spread it out again, and read it, took out his watch, and said between his teeth, If I can only catch the five train from Newcastle to London tonight, I'd be in London by eleven in the morning. But damn it all! I'm five and twenty miles from the nearest station on the main line. I can't possibly catch it. No, it's no good tonight, I'm afraid. He was striding up and down the little sitting room he had taken at the end chewing half inches off a cigar which he was trying to smoke, while these agonizing thoughts were chasing each other through his brain. He stopped and threw himself down into an armchair and said, biting each syllable off as it came, Now what the devil am I to do? The next moment he heard the rattle of machinery, a loud toot-toot under the window. He jumped up and looked out. Thank God there's Hargreaves with his panhard. He'll get me there in time. She'll do it in fifteen minutes. He ran downstairs, just as the big forty-horsepower motor-car owned by his partner, Hargreaves, the man with whom he was working against other iron and coal kings, stopped panting, puffing, and stinking at the door. He had snatched his golf cap off the peg in the hall as he ran out, but he had forgotten he had left his coat off in order to do a cool and luxurious smoke and think at the end of the long northern summer afternoon. "'Hello, Enstone!' exclaimed Arthur Hargreaves, millionaire, mine-owner, and much-fined motorist. "'What the deuce is the matter with you? "'Your costume seems a bit different to mine,' he went on, "'as he climbed out of the big car, capped, goggled, and leather-coated. 
Nothing serious, I hope. Enstone caught him by the arm and pulled him away out of the hearing of his chauffeur. It's everything that's serious to me, Hargreaves, he said in a hurried whisper. I'm in a difficulty, and a bad one, and you're the only man who can help me get out of it. Anything you like, old man. What is it? If it's anything that wants speed in it, well, here you are. Sixty-five miles an hour and hang on the police. We can afford the fines, I think, if it's anything urgent. Well, that's just it, replied Harold. Never mind about the details just now. I'm twenty-five miles from Enstone and sixty from Newcastle, and I want to catch the five express to town or to get a special. It's something more than life or death to me, but I will tell you afterwards. Can you do it for me? Do it, my dear chap replied the owner of the mechanical monster that was panting, rattling, and throbbing, as though it had made up his mind to either burst or go flying away down the long straight road. Do it. The roads are open enough. There's very little traffic here. Now we'll put you into Newcastle inside eighty minutes, bar accidents, and then I can give you plenty of time to pack your portmanteau and have a whiskey and soda with me. Good enough, said Harold, putting his hand on his shoulder. Come and have that whiskey and soda. By the Lord, Harry... You are a friend indeed this time, Hargreaves. Within ten minutes he had taken his place beside Hargreaves on the panting, shuddering machine. The horn hooted twice. Hargreaves turned the wheel, and with a swift series of angry snorts, as though it were venting its rage at having its powers so long restrained, the great motor-car bounded forward and vanished in a cloud of dust away down the long, solitary country road. End of chapter 28